Welcome to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host, Andre Ganuela. And there's a lot that has happened in the past week, Andre. What's on your mind? So Ryan, you're sitting down in DC. You seem happy. And well, I can see you on this video right now. And so I assume the threats to DC that were expected on March 4th did not materialize, right? So like the House of Representatives did not actually go to work today. The Senate went to work to pass the uh, the COVID relief bill. But there is a lot of expectations that there would be some sort of militia activity and so on associated with the far right movements uh, that sought to dispute the election. So I guess yeah. you're, you're living just a couple of blocks down from the White House. I guess nothing's really going on there. No, it's, it's all quiet in the nation's capital. Um, I, you know, I saw, as everyone saw, these reports that are, you know, some far right elements might be trying to have a round two of an insurrection or trying to shepherd in the, the presidency of now former President Donald Trump. And that doesn't seem to be the case. They're still maintaining a National Guard presence. There's a a significant police presence in DC. Everyone seems to be, you know, ready for any sort of action that might occur. But uh, it's it's quite quiet here, and so that's you know a good sign. And hopefully, uh, the the law enforcement uh, personnel are ready for any type of activity by you know fringe groups. But um, for the time being, uh, as we talk on Thursday evening, uh, all is well in DC. Yeah, and well, as we know, and you know, anything can change uh, between the time we record and the time we actually release this on Friday morning. Typically, folks, we really we record on Thursday afternoons, Thursday evenings, and uh, one example of that was actually last week. We saw right after we recorded, actually, I think an hour after we recorded, uh, the United States, the Biden administration, launched its first uh, military action against. Iranian-linked militants in Syria. So basically what happened was that there were uh, rocket, I think, rocket attacks on U.S.-led coalition forces in Iraq, uh, I think in mid-February, and that actually ended up killing a U.S. contractor and injured some service members and so on. So this uh, this attack against basically Iranian-linked militant infrastructure, I think it killed around maybe a little less than 20 of those militants, was really aimed at retaliating for that rocket attack. And also probably a signal that the Biden administration is not going to be, it's not just going to sit back and let, you know, let things happen, let aggression sort of stand. Just because, you know, many people are sort of viewing the United States as leaving the Middle East, sort of drawing back on its uh, presence in the region. But while we are drawing down, uh, that doesn't mean that the United States is not going to retaliate or is not going to try to project its toughness on the world stage in the region. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting to point out that if you looked at social media uh, right after the attack, you'll see that both sides were attacking President Biden for the strike. You know, some calling it, you know, not the, the proper use of military force. Others saying, you know, we're violating uh, serious sovereignty. Uh, but again, Andre, as you mentioned, right, this was a retaliatory strike against Iran-backed militias for the attack in Iraq. Who attacked us? Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. Precisely. Again, exactly. Emphasis on retaliatory. Um, and so this was not like, I mean, folks, this wasn't like a random like sudden attack that the Biden administration launched. So, and also sort of keeping with that, I mean, news actually just came out today that uh, President Biden, half an hour before there was supposed to be a second strike, actually called off that second strike because the military asked sort of the, the bombs were in the air. 
they saw that there was, I think, a woman and some children in the courtyard for the building they were about to bomb. So uh, President Biden actually called off the attack because he didn't want to kill civilians. So that attack did not happen. Right. So showing some restraint. Um, and this kind of calls into question the broader Middle East strategy. And uh, Andre, I know we were, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, uh, but the administration released an interim national security strategic guidance, which is going to kind of lead all of the departments towards a national security strategy that I believe is set to be released in 2022. Um, it's you know not a very long document, but I think it's a very telling document. There's a lot of interesting um, policy in there, a kind of you know directing the state of national security and foreign policy of the United States, kind of showing where the priorities of the administration lie. And so I think you know first and foremost, it says that the Biden administration is charting a new course. And that in order to meet the threats that are posed against the United States, there needs to be collective action. And so that what that means is that the United States is, quote unquote, back. It's going to reengage with its alliances. It's going to promote democracy around the world. And it's also going to fix itself at home. Right. It, it really does emphasize uh, the attacks on democracy at home, um, all of the you know racial injustice, the um, um inequality in the United States. And so while it talks about broader geopolitical issues, it also talks about domestic issues in the United States. And the document, I mean, the document basically screams multilateralism. And I, I mean, there's a, a very interesting line there uh, that refers to a couple of regions of interest to the U.S. Specifically, they say that uh, we will recognize, I'm quoting this, Quote, we will recognize that our vital national interests compel the deepest connection to the Indo-Pacific, Europe, and the Western Hemisphere. Uh, dot, dot, dot. We will deepen our partnership with India and work alongside New Zealand, as well as Singapore, Vietnam, and other association of Southeast Asian nations, ASEAN member states, to advance shared objectives. So I think the fact that in that line, the first region they mention is the Indo-Pacific and not Europe, is really telling. I mean, many foreign policy analysts have sort of viewed the Biden administration as pivoting towards Asia. Certainly, I mean, now, I mean, we were just discussing Syria, of course, but there is less of an emphasis on the Middle East in foreign policy circles. Certainly, there is a pivot towards Asia because of the threat of China. I mean, we were talking yesterday with the Atlantic Council, uh, I believe Dr. Harlan Ullman, about whether he believed that his idea was in a bipolar or multipolar world, a bipolar world basically implying that it's the U.S. versus China, two superpowers against each other, or a multipolar world, the U.S., China, Russia, and other major powers sort of all sort of collectively, quote unquote, ruling the world. But I think, you know, this pivot to Asia because of the threat of China and more so the key name dropping of India as the first country sort of mentioned after that sentence is really telling. I mean, we've done an episode with Ambassador Arun Singh about uh, sort of like India's sort of place in the world. And India is very much a country that likes to not be allied per se with the U.S. or Russia or China they very much like to maintain their autonomy. Just because they're autonomous, though, doesn't mean that their interests won't align with uh, other countries and so on. For example, right now we're seeing U.S. and Indian interests ally, especially against China, because, I mean, India is sort of the geopolitical bulwark against China. 
So it'll be very interesting to see how the Biden administration approaches India and how they sort of go from there. I mean, much progress has been made from the Bush administration and onwards. U.S.-India relationships, the U.S.-India relationship has only gotten stronger and closer since uh, the early 2000s. And it's going to be getting stronger and stronger, especially with the China threat. So, Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about these state-based threats, but there's also um, these issue-based threats that the that this um, guidance really emphasizes and drives home, that being, you know, from health security to climate change to cyber. And so it really focuses on issues as well as uh, states, as we mentioned, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they called the, the latter two regional uh, threats. And so, of course, you know, that's telling Iran, you know, is trying to kind of bolster its influence within the Middle East. And of course, you know, the United States, this strike is a good example of saying we're not going to allow that. Uh, but again, I think these these issue-based um, threats are, are really significant in that the, the administration is really trying to tackle these issues. We're not we're no longer living uh, in the Cold War, Andre, as much as, you know, some people within our, our political conversation try to make it seem like the U.S. and, and China are, you know, on this new you know, arms race and a new Cold War that really doesn't seem to be the case uh, just because there's so many other factors that are influencing it. And it's not to you know, downplay the threat of China. It is certainly the greatest threat the United States is facing at the moment. Uh, but there are all these other issues then. And this guidance makes it quite clear that the administration knows exactly what it needs to do uh, to address all of these threats, China included, and all the other you know, larger looming threats such as cyber. Certainly. And I think especially, you know, with the solar winds hacking and so on, of which on which Ryan and I actually wrote a opinion piece in the Hill. Uh, I mean, the cyber issue is going to be huge. It's going to be absolutely huge. And I think one of the biggest challenges with cyber is the idea that, you know, we have cyber weapons now, cyber weapons, which are fundamentally more difficult to regulate than nuclear weapons, than conventional weapons and so on, because I mean, a cyber weapon might be a piece of code or something along those lines. So how does the world work together to ensure that, you know, we can deter certain cyber attacks, certain acts of cyber warfare and so on? Yeah. We actually spoke to Admiral, I think, Stavridis uh, this past Monday on the issue. As the Admiral, of course, has the thinking that we need a cyber force, a seventh branch of the U.S. armed forces. Other people may disagree with that. But I think it certainly highlights the necessity of preparing for these new threats. Exactly. And, and I mean, also, I mean, on, on that same line, Ryan, you mentioned, you know, fixing democracy at home. Uh, the Biden administration, I think, on the literally like on one of the first few pages, they specifically state that, quote unquote, democracies across the globe, including our own, are increasingly under siege. Yes, you know, the United States has had some democratic difficulties over the past year or so, especially with the election doubters. But I mean, there are that's also a key reference to what's happening in Europe right now. There's a lot of democratic backsliding, which has, you know, made some people in NATO a bit concerned. There's democratic backsliding in in Asia, actually. I mean, we've been talking about Myanmar for the longest time. They are literally killing people right now in Myanmar. The the army that has taken control it has deposed the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi. And there are many, many protests going on there, but the army is trying to come down with an ironclad fist. I, I think one of the most interesting parts about this guidance is the focus on 
more, you know, internal issues, right? It's talking about investing in American, the American people, the American economy, and our democracy. And so it's a very internal focused document in order to then externally have a sound and strong U.S. national security and foreign policy, which is quite different than other guidances we've seen uh, in previous administrations. And so, again, this is about not really returning to the old, but kind of creating a new path for the future of having shared norms, having new agreements, and ensuring that we can wrangle with uh, these new emerging threats, particularly technology. There's a big focus on technology here. We talked about cyber. It also talks about 5G, talks about quantum computing. And so um, it, it's quite nice to see that the, the administration is really forward-looking, trying to kind of move beyond the, the conventional threats that we typically look at when we're looking at national security. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a quite quite a, a strong way for the administration to kind of kickstart its national security agenda. Yeah, and I mean, the whole document also screams soft power. I mean, Ryan, as you said, there is a lot of internal facing uh, policy that is within this document. And again, this is also an interim national security strategy. The full thing's probably coming up uh, very soon, maybe within a few weeks or a few months. But uh, this is sort of like the first step towards like sort of saying like, hey, here's the overarching idea. And I mean, the thing about soft power is, is it's so important. I mean... We had the we had the race uh, protests over the summer about George Floyd and so on about police brutality, and you know when you see imagery in the United States of you know certain protesters being beaten up or like cops fighting the protesters and so on, what does that mean for American foreign policy? How is the United States, which has long been a you know a promoter of democracy around the world? How is it supposed to go to Myanmar or India right now, you know, facing a farmer's protest and actively say, hey, you know, you got to be democratic when there are pictures that the U.S.'s enemies can now use against the United States. So it's all about improving soft power, especially because, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm a strong believer in the idea that the U.S. lost a lot of soft power as a result of the lackluster response to the pandemic. I mean, when you have like, you know, significantly smaller countries, uh, countries in the global south, not a knock on them. But when you see some of these countries, smaller countries, countries that don't really, you know, get too much name recognition, be able to deal with the virus effectively and efficiently, while the US has regrettably, sadly, and unfortunately lost half a million people. And state governments are like not cooperating. We're seeing people, you know, drop mass mandates. People are just as defiant as ever. What does that say about the power of the United States? It says something very bad about the power of the United States, that the U.S. can't get its act together. So this document, I think, is an active way to get back on course in the Biden administration's view. Yeah, I mean, national security is not just about dropping bombs and invading countries, right? It's it's about, I mean, there's so many facets of national security. And we we talked about it from, you know, race relations and the United at home to our diplomatic relations abroad. I mean, it's it's all encompassing from health policy, climate, exactly. And so I think if there's one takeaway from this document, it's on page seven and it says, quote, the United States must lead by the power of our example, and that will require work at home. Close quote. Right? I mean, that is the takeaway of the Biden administration's national security policy. At the moment, it's about ensuring that the United States can lead once again. It's about reasserting its place as the global hegemon. 
And so that's not going to be good news for China or Russia or other adversaries who have for the past handful of years been able to get away with much more than they previously were. And, you know, there's a story I want to recount from when Ronald Reagan met Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985 at the Geneva summit, their first meeting, the first meeting between the U.S. and Soviet leaders. One of the points that Gorbachev brought up was the idea that, like, how can the U.S. go about promoting democracy uh, promoting all these great ideals and, you know, come against the Soviet Union when there is such racial disparity in the United States. Like, they can't. I mean, reasonably, like, I mean, some countries won't take the U.S. seriously and they'll just view it as a geopolitical strategic ploy. So, I mean, I'm just recounting that story because I think that I think that uh, the example still stands uh, with so many of the social issues we face in the country right now. And, you know, our our quest to promote democracy against, you know, China and so on and throughout the world. Yeah, uh, there's, there's actually one more thing I want to kind of point to in particular in the document. That is the when we look at the Middle East, they, they talk about Israel in a couple of lines. One, they, you know, they maintain the commitment to supporting Israel and security, but they also emphasize the need for a two state solution. Right. And so. There were a lot of questions as to what the administration's Israel policy would be, particularly with an uncertain um, who would be the ambassador, who's going to lead um, Middle East policy, who, how are relations between the United States and the, the Palestinians going to, going to kind of unfold. And so this at least is opening the door, right? Because the Trump administration certainly closed the door with the full force support of Netanyahu and his more, I, I'd call it, uh, far-right policies, particularly when you're looking at settlements, uh, and, and, and particularly in the West Bank. And so this, at least, is kind of bringing the Palestinians hopefully back to the table and so that there will likely be some sort of movement, depending on, of course, the domestic politics in Israel, um, that, again, you know, we're, we're not going to see peace in the Middle East anytime soon, but at least, you know, uh, the, the, this administration is committed to having a, a, a two-way conversation. Yeah. And I mean, while it is going to be a two-way conversation, Ryan, I don't know if you saw uh, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken's tweet from March 3rd, yesterday at least for us, uh, quote, the U.S. firmly opposes an international criminal court investigation into the Palestinian situation. We will continue to uphold our strong commitment to Israel and its security, including by opposing actions that seek to target Israel unfairly. What does he mean by the Palestinian situation? Well, I was sort of confused by that wording. It, it, it's quite interesting. Where again, he's he's trying to walk a fine line, just because the International Criminal Court has, for a very long time, been trying to go after Israel for uh, alleged "quote unquote" war crimes. And this, of I mean, of course, if you're in in Israel, if you're an Israeli policymaker, if you're Benjamin Netanyahu, you're not happy by this. Uh, and so, I, I think it's it's uh, Secretary Blinken is in this tweet, and it's probably not the best tweet he could have put out or the best statement just because it's so ambig uh, ambiguous. Um, I think he's trying to say that the United States, while being committed to its ally Israel, is also you know, looking into the, the Palestinian situation uh, in, in order to kind of say, hey, Israel, we have your back uh, on this, while also not saying you know, the ICC should not look into it, just because um, one thing that the Trump administration did is sanction um, members of the ICC and not allow members of the ICC to investigate the United States. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is not a party to the, the ICC. And so there is really no you know, legal authority for them to um, you know, bring in U.S. Uh, leaders and even U.S. citizens in front of the court. 
Um, but with this, I mean, the, the Biden administration has reasserted um, its commitment to cooperation with the ICC, even though it doesn't have any legal authority to do so. Speaking of national security, I don't know if you heard the fighter jets going over my house uh, just now, but I live right next to the Miramar Air Force Base where they film Top Gun. So folks, sometimes you might be able to hear those fighter jets going over, but don't mind them. But yeah, Ryan, uh, I, I absolutely agree. And it doesn't look like the ICC is going to be uh, joined by the U.S. at any time soon. Uh, so yeah. Well, I hope those uh, those fighter jets in the background are you know keeping you safe, Andre. Um, so um, yeah, always. Very safe. Um, all right, so let's um, kind of move on to what's happening around the world. I want to kind of start off by talking about Russia, of course. Um, that's what I do in my pastime. Um, and so, so the United States joined the the European Union in sanctioning Russian officials involved in the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Uh, we talked about Navalny quite a bit. He is the opposition politician and anti-corruption blogger. He is currently in prison for a couple of charges uh, and will likely stay in prison for at least two, about two and a half years, if not a little longer. Uh, and so the United States and the European Union collectively are targeting those within the Russian state security apparatus, those within the FSB, which is Russia's internal security um, agency, as well as those within Russia's Ministry of Defense. Uh, I mean, this is, again, I mean, you, you always ask the question of how effective are sanctions? And when you're looking at Russia, they can certainly be effective. Uh, will they change Russian policy? No. I mean, we haven't seen, there, nothing has suggested that sanctions will move the needle when you're looking at uh, Russian decision-making, particularly because the decision-making in, in Russia comes from the top with Vladimir Putin. And so unless you're directly hurting him, uh, you're likely not going to see much movement. And just because you, you can't really get at him, you can get at those connected to him. Um, there's not not a lot of movement there. And so uh, these sanctions, of course, were necessary uh, and are you know a, a nice sign to the international community of the United States' um, you know, dismay with, with the situation in Russia. Oh, God, Andre, that's a lot of fighter jets this evening. There are a lot of fighter jets. I mean, as the Biden administration puts out its national security strategy, oh. I, I guess they're... Doing some practice defense rounds as well. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad uh, our money is being put to good use. Um, so anyway, so that's the situation in Russia. Um, as far as when we're looking around the world, Andre, you mentioned Myanmar. Uh, and so, of course, there's this coup. 38 dead. 38 dead. I mean, it's... 38 dead in Myanmar. It's a virtual war zone. It's, it's, it's uh, terrible. The military is just going against these... Many of which are young people, these protesters who are trying to, you know, stand up for democracy. But I mean, right now, uh, the military is just hardcore cracking down. Uh, and then, I mean, for more bloodshed, you can just look towards Ethiopia because there are massacres that have happened in the Tigray region. Uh, many, many civilians have been killed in the in that area. Uh, a very sad situation. We covered the Ethiopian uh, situation in one of our past uh, episodes, but uh, but the U.S. has uh, quote unquote expressed its concern about the crisis. Uh, not sure if that concern is going to be translated to action, but uh, we will see what happens with that situation. Yep, with both of the situations. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and so th there's one more thing on my radar, Andre, and that is Germany's far-right AfD party, Alternative for Deutschland party, which is a, a considerable party within, within Germany. It is the first party to be put under government surveillance since the Nazi era. And so 
over the you know the past maybe about ten years, Afde has increased its popularity. Um, you know, populism has swept throughout Germany. Um, of course, Merkel's party, the the Christian Democrats, have maintained power. Uh, she's still chancellor, but I know she, of course, is on her way out. Uh, the CDU is likely to maintain power in the future. Uh, but AfD is is increasing in popularity, uh, particularly with the issues that we've seen of immigration in Germany. They've experienced a lot of of the brunt of the the crisis following the Syrian civil war and that uh, immigration issue. And so, with that, right, we've seen we've seen populism, nationalism, kind of the rise of the far right in Germany. And so, I think. Uh, this is qu- quite fascinating that a political party in Germany is under government surveillance um, and kind of, you know, a, a sign of the times right across the world where we're seeing the governments trying to wrangle with the threats internally of, of nationalism and populism and even, you know, the political apparatus kind of coming uh, under under scrutiny by political actors. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh I mean, the rise of the far right, as you said, and like, I mean, all this democratic backsliding we're seeing in Europe is a very concerning thing. And uh, yeah, the fact that it's been put under government surveillance the first time since the Nazi era, by the way, when the, when that, the Nazi era was undertaking that government surveillance, that, that government surveillance was put on the opposition parties, not on the Nazi party. So, I mean... Uh, that's a scary sort of thing that's happening. And uh, Ryan, not to sort of change the topic, but I know we have a few minutes left here, but I just wanted to t- touch on something that I think we might have missed in the national security strategy that uh, aligns with something that's been happening in Yemen. So the Houthi rebels have basically c- seized the control of a majority of the districts in uh, the city of Marib, one of the major cities of Yemen. Uh, it's certainly... Uh, I mean, it's a major blow to, I think, uh, the Saudi-backed government. But on that note of Saudi Arabia and the national security strategy, uh, basically, the Biden administration stated that certain countries in the Middle East will not be given a blank check to operate as freely as they used to, right? And I think that's certainly very much a backhanded swipe towards Saudi Arabia. Obviously, it's also a swipe at Iran. But certainly, it's putting Saudi Arabia on high alert for all of the uh, the things that they have done, especially with regards to the war in Yemen. That that is as much of a call out uh, as the Saudis as as one can do without actually mentioning them by name. And so, as we we talked about in previous episodes, that uh, the Biden administration is taking a turn in its relations with Saudi Arabia, and and this guidance says it on paper. Yes. Yeah. And folks, I mean, the war in Yemen is still going on. I know sometimes we see posts on Instagram and you'll be like, oh, I'll share this post and I'll just understand everything I know about the conflict from said post. But these conflicts are years in the making and they are years in the resolving. You're not just going to get all your information from Instagram posts. So whenever you see these things, and this is just something that's been on my mind, do dig in much further into what exactly is going on, because there are many deep-rooted causes and many consequences of these uh, situations. And just because the Yemen war hasn't been popping up on Instagram doesn't mean it stopped. It is still going, and it's going pretty hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, and this is not just, you know, in Yemen, it's around the world. There are things happening around the world that we just don't pay attention to. And I mean, Andre and I try to every week kind of break down some of them for you all. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll provide resources. We have our, our weekly newsletter where we try to dig a bit deeper 
into some issues and provide uh, you all listeners with you know a world happenings. Um, but with that, Andre, we are kind of reaching the end of this week's episode. Um, for all of you listening, thank you very much. And be sure to check out uh, our, our episode releasing on Monday with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Uh, it will be a fascinating episode. She is a great one. She has a great deal of national security experience. She served our country um, overseas as well. And so that will be a great one. And also make sure to check out our collaboration with the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center. We're doing a mini series where we highlight their 100 ideas for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Uh, we've had two episodes released so far. We've got more in the making. And so with that, uh, thank you very much for listening. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. I'm Andre Gonawala. Thanks, uh, folks. Uh, see you on Monday and be sure to tune in on Friday for our next installment of What in the World. Thank you. Thank you.